film with a surprise ending, and perhaps read a book with an ending that you didn't quite expect. I think my favourite book of that was a film called Educating Rita, uh, which was brought out a few years ago. When I checked this out, it was actually brought out the year I was born. Uh, so you've probably had time to watch it, if you're going to watch it. Um, but uh, it stars Michael Caine, Julie Walters, and they fall in love as he teaches her English literature. And the film ends with the two characters, the two main characters at the airport. Julie Walters has left her abusive husband, and it looks like they're going to elope together, uh, and that'd be their happy ending. But then as the camera pans out, they actually go off their separate ways. He goes off to teach English abroad, and she goes off to her bright new future. And it's a totally unexpected ending. It's there really to make the powerful point that she's able to make her own decisions now, but it's not what you're expecting to happen at the end of the story. Well, this morning, as we continue our hitchhike through the Bible, we're going to hit the highest point of the Old Testament. It's really not going to get better than this in the Old Testament. We're going to come as close as we possibly can, really, to the kingdom of God that we said was the big theme of the Bible. Remember God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. We're going to see uh, the best king Israel ever had this morning. We're going to see the wisest person that ever lived apart from Jesus. And we're going to see God descend and dwell with man in the temple. But, without giving you too much of a spoiler, there's going to be a surprising ending. This may sound like it's going to be amazing, but things aren't going to happen the way you might expect them to. Well, where have we got to so far? Well, just to give you a bit of a recap, if you remember, we've uh, looked a bit at the pattern of the kingdom. We saw Adam and Eve Uh, there, and we saw how they uh, destroyed the kingdom. They were God's people living in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing, but they turned away from God and were cast out of the garden. We saw Noah and that sort of restart that didn't quite happen. We've seen Abraham as he was promised the kingdom uh, to his descendants, the land of Canaan uh, and a covenant. We then had Isaac, Jacob, Joseph uh, went after there, and then Moses we saw, uh, who brought the people out of Egypt and Joshua, who brought them into the promised land. And between then and the bit that we're going to look at this morning, we have the judges, who are an increasingly crazy bunch. Uh, a bit of a downward spiral if you read the book of Judges. And it ends with the nation emulating Sodom and Gomorrah. They've got that bad that they're even worse than the people that they're kicking out. You get the story of Ruth, a love story. And it shows that even in that awful time, there is some hope. And then there's a, a, the last judge, Samuel, who's a prophet, priest, and a judge. And he does an alright job, but his sons are unfit. So the people ask for a king. Now that in itself is not bad, but they ask to be like the nations around them, which God had told them they weren't to be. They ask for a king to lead them into battle, which is what God had said that he himself would do. So God punishes the people with a bad king. King Saul, who disobeys God. God's spirit is removed from him, and the throne departs from him. Jonathan, his son, doesn't become king. And then enter King David, who we were just reading about. He wasn't king to start with. He was a shepherd, the youngest in his father's house, a descendant of Ruth uh, that we just heard about. And Samuel anoints him king on, uh, on God's instruction. He's the anointed one. In Hebrew, that's the word Messiah, or in Greek, that's the word Christ. That term in the Old Testament is used for David. But he's not recognised at this point as the king. He does famous things like defeat Goliath, and he begins to work in Saul's court as a musician and a soldier. But Saul becomes jealous, and David goes into hiding. Time and again, David refuses to kill Saul. 
But Saul dies in battle along with his son, Jonathan, and David <coughs> becomes king. That's a very whistle-stop tour, really, of what goes on in between. Um, but it gets us into where we are now. We're meeting David. This is where we're, we're coming in. We're going to meet David partway through his reign. And we're going to look at our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so you might find it helpful to have it uh, open in front of you. And this is where God is going to make some promises uh, to King David. It's one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, so if you have that open, you'll see there that David has a plan to build a house uh, for the Lord. This is our first heading, David and his house. David plans to build a house for the Lord. Now, David's already started to move things towards Jerusalem. The, the Ark of the Covenant has been moved nearby uh, in the tabernacle. But now he plans to build a permanent structure. You can see that he's uncomfortable with the fact that he's got his own, his own house, his own palace. And he's uncomfortable with the fact that God lives in a tent. But God has other plans, doesn't he? So David plans to build him a house, but actually God plans to build David a house. You see, so God's saying, uh, David's saying, I'll build you a house. And God's saying, no, 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 I'll build you a house. That's what's going to happen. Not a building, but a dynasty. And he makes him promises. He promises him a people, if you like. Uh, it's more focused here, if you like, on, on, on David's offspring. Uh, do you see that down there in verse... Um, lost my place now. Um, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He promises him an offspring. Now, we've seen that before, haven't we, on our hitchhike? An offspring was promised to the woman who would crush the serpent's head. An offspring was promised to Abraham who would inherit all the promises. And now, an offspring is promised to David, who will reign, who will rule. David's offspring. He offers him a place. So if you look at verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. He's saying this king is going to be king over this place that he's giving, which is Israel. And again, David is saying at the beginning, he wants to make a place for God. And God is saying, no, 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 I'm making a place for you and the people. I'm the one that's making this, this place for you. Now, the focus is going to move on to the other place, if you like, the other house that's talking about here, the temple. That's really going to be the big place that we'll be talking about this morning. But can you see that God is, is making similar promises to David that he's making to Abraham? And we see that really again in, in verse 9. We see a rule and blessing, don't we? And I have been, uh, so I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the ones, the great ones on the earth. Does that ring a bell? That was a promise to Abraham, wasn't it? I will make you a great name. It's as though he's repeating the promises to Abraham, but he's making it more specific for David and his family. It's sort of personalising the promise for David and his offspring. He's one of the kings that was promised to Abraham. Abraham was said that kings would come from his line. Well, David is one of those kings. And he's following on with the promise. And as with Abraham, this will happen through his seed, through his offspring. Now, it could mean that uh, there'll be a, a dynasty that will endure. That's the way we could take this. So saying that the throne will endure forever. It could mean that there'll just be a succession of kings. But we know from history that, that didn't happen. Or it could mean a king that would rule forever somehow. 
A king that will keep going, that will somehow keep living. That's his offspring. That's what he's being promised. And we're told as well, aren't we, that it would be God's son. So verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this offspring of David will be offspring of son of David, but he will also be called the son of God. Now, up until this point, that had been Israel as a whole. If you remember, Israel was called God's son. But again, the promises are now becoming more specific. This son will build a house for God's name. He'd be the involved in where God is dwelling. Could this be the seed of the woman that we were promised that would crush the serpent's head? Is this the serpent crusher that we've been promised since Genesis? And the obvious reading here is that it's David's son. It says from his body. So what are you expecting? Well, you're expecting it to be the next king, aren't you? You're expecting it to be the one who, who comes afterwards. Well, let's see. The Lord and his throne. We're going to look at 1 Kings, uh, chapter 8 there, which is just a few more pages on in your Bible. 1 Kings, chapter 8. And I'll start reading at verse 22. We're going to meet David's son. This is when uh, Solomon has built the temple and he's praying. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and your hand has fulfilled this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne before, uh, before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their ways to walk before me, as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to this prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when, and when you hear, forgive. And then down to verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with, outstretched, uh, with our hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, for which I have pleaded before the Lord, 
Be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may you maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of the people of Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as as at this day. So here we're jumping in partway through the reign of Solomon, David's son. Solomon's the son of Bathsheba, and uh, arguably that's David's greatest mistake, isn't it? It's strange that actually he becomes the next king. Now he's not the son of their adultery, that son dies shortly afterwards. But he's a later son after they got married. And again, in between this bit, other sons have tried to take the throne, but Solomon is crowned. And there's an era of peace, his very name means peace. It's from the same root as Shalom, uh, which you hear quite often, or Salam as you get it in Arabic. As in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And Solomon has built the temple at this point. And it seems to fulfil the prophecy that we just read about, didn't we? That David's son would build a house for the name of the Lord. We have God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. And we have rest on every side, don't we? A bit like the rest that Joshua had given. But even greater. Now we said that that was a peak that sort of hit and then we, we noticed there's another peak ahead. Well, this is the peak ahead. If you like, this is the next peak. And it's even higher than the one that uh, we had with Joshua. It's a bit like that sign on the M62. Uh, have you seen that one? You know where there's the, the house that's in the middle of the M62. And you go a little bit further and there's that sign saying this is the highest spot of motorway that you get uh, in England. Well, this is the highest spot that we get in the Bible, in the, well, in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the, the, the real deal, if you like. This is the high point. It doesn't get better than this. And the very temple that Solomon's built has echoes of Eden. So if you look on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see that there are uh, some verses there. I won't read them all out, but it's just to show you that they're there. But in the temple, you had lampstands shaped like trees. You had flowers and pomegranates. It's an image of a garden. You have the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, like the cherubim that guarded the Garden of Eden. You have adornments of living creatures, animals all the way through it. Even though really images were a a bit, you didn't really do it, did you, in, in ancient Israel, images. But they are there in the temple of animals. It's all overlaid with gold and precious stones like Eden. And just to sort of maybe tell you something that you haven't considered before... Eden, if you think about it, must be on a mountain. It's a little bit strange to have a a garden on a mountain, but if you think about the imagery that you have, the four rivers that flow from Eden, they have to flow downhill, don't they? Rivers don't flow uphill. So Eden seems to be on an elevated position. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the mountain of God. uh, In Ezekiel 28. But the temple as well is set on a mountain. It's, It's elevated, it's lifted up. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. Now, that doesn't tell us about Eden, but it will come in when we get to the end of our, uh, uh, our hitchhike uh, in the final week. And we'll see that that does mean it's a bit like Eden. Um, but this is where God is meeting with his people. That's the idea. Just like Eden, where God walked with his people in the garden. So now God will meet with his people in the temple. The temple now takes on the idea of God's place. The place where you meet with God. Again, it's, it's sort of narrowing down just like it did with David. God, in some sense, is dwelling with man. But that's not the only amazing thing about Solomon's reign. Under Solomon, Israel is blessed. They have rest on every side. Their enemies have been subdued. 
More than that, they have shalom, they have wellness, they have wholeness, they have peace. They have a wise ruler, don't they? I remember doing a, a Bible study with some international students uh, a few years ago. And uh, so, you know, what would a perfect world be like? And their first answer was a good leader. We, we need a, a good wise leader. And that's here, isn't it? They've got this, this wise leader. It's really important who's in charge. He brings justice and he brings prosperity to the people. Gold and silver abound in Solomon's day. They're also the largest that they'll ever be. This is the largest that the nation ever gets. And it looks amazing, doesn't it? And under Solomon, even the nations outside are blessed. That's the point of the Queen of Sheba coming in. She leads with great blessing. He's wiser than all the other kings of the world. And along with his father David, really, if you count them together, they're the greatest king, really, that Israel ever has. This period under David and Solomon is the heights. But for all of this, Solomon plays a rather interesting role, if you think about it, in the history of Scripture. Because he embodies the height of the kingdom, but he also sows the seeds of its own destruction. So let's fast forward just three chapters uh, to a house divided. Uh, So chapter 1, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, among them the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonite, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they uh, with you, for surely they will, turn, uh, sorry, they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shamosh, uh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." So Solomon here turns away from the Lord. The wisest man on earth becomes a fool. And it's totally unexpected, isn't it? You'd think the wisest man, well, he wouldn't turn away. Except for we've seen the seeds of this all the way through Solomon's life. The marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, entering into partnership, really, with the nation that had enslaved them. He has 700 wives 
I was uh, doing an assembly a couple of weeks ago in uh, the primary schools in Otley, and I, I got 700 hula hoops to show them just, you know, if you have the wedding ring of all 700 wives. And that's the biggest gasp I think I've ever got as I poured the hula hoops out. 700 wives. <laughs> think of those as all the political alliances that he's trying to, to form with other nations, as well as the romantic side of things. He's got 700 wives. And the accumulation of riches and horses and chariots. And the Bible makes a big point of the fact that they're from Egypt as well. The Bible warned the kings not to do this. So for all his wisdom, for all his cleverness, his heart was turned and he became a fool. And a generation later, uh, with his son, the kingdom does divide in two. This is one of the bits I think we often miss in the Bible sometimes. It, it gets confusing because of the names. But the ten northern tribes go with his, uh, with his servant, Jeroboam. So that's Ephraim, Manasseh, Reuben, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Naphtali, Asher, Dan, Simeon, though technically they're in the south, but it seems though they move up to the north. And they form a whole a kingdom by themselves. The Bible calls it Ephraim, you get that sometimes. Or sometimes, confusingly, the Bible calls it Israel. So if you're looking after Solomon, when it says Israel, it means the northern kingdom, those ten tribes. And all the kings of the northern kingdom are bad, without exception. There are many different dynasties that go on because they all keep assassinating each other. It's really not a good picture up there. Jeroboam, the king, he starts off, sorry, Jeroboam, the king, starts off idolatry there. He sets up a, a calf in the north and a calf in the south. Golden calves really for Israel again are not really a good idea. But it's to stop the people going to Jerusalem, which was in the south. It's to stop them going back to where God had told them to go. So that's the northern kingdom. And then there's the southern kingdom. Uh, now, normally we don't like the south, do we, up north? Uh, but the southern kingdom is the good one, if you like. It's the one that, that stays with David. And it's the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe. And it's the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe. And in the Bible, they're normally called Judah. Or sometimes just called, uh, um, uh, yeah, sorry, sometimes called Judah, even though it's Judah and Benjamin. And the kingdom is split for the rest of the Old Testament. They never get back together for the rest of the, uh, the time of, of, of our hitchhike, if you like, or certainly not until the New Testament. And you can follow their stories through one and two kings. You get kings like Ahab in the north, and Hezekiah in the south, and Josiah and Jehoshaphat. God begins to send them prophets. So we get Elisha and Elijah. You get the written prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. All these prophets write during this period or a little bit later. We're going to look at them next week as we look at the prophesied kingdom. But this is our surprise ending, isn't it? We, we hit the heights with Solomon, the greatest the kingdom had ever been, but also he brought it to ruin. Though not totally. Did you notice that as we go through? There was a reason that God wasn't going to completely destroy them. God did not do to Solomon what he did to Saul. From Saul, he took the kingdom away entirely. Even though he used similar language, actually part of the kingdom stays with Solomon and his descendants. But it's not because of Solomon's wisdom. It's not because of Solomon's military might. It's not because of Solomon's goodness. It's because of God's promises. Do you see that? God had promised his father David. So verse 12, Yet for the sake of David, your father... I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. For the sake of your servant David, verse 13. It's all to do with his dad. 
It's all to do with these promises that he has made. God will not break his promise. And this is our confidence in the world for us, isn't it? God's promises. We fail, we mess up, we we do all sorts of things uh, that are not good. But God's promises still stand. Even if we're as bad as Solomon, God still understands and keeps his promises. If God has said it, it will come to pass. He will guide us safely home. He will not condemn us if we're trusting in Christ. And one day he's promised that Christ will be recognised as king. So we look like fools in a way at the moment, don't we, in our world, following uh, a crucified saviour, a crucified king. But one day God has promised that actually it will be revealed that Christ is king. Christ will return. (coughs) He will reign on earth as he did in heaven. So he really will keep that promise that David will never lack a man on the throne. Because Christ is there, the true son of David, the lamb on the throne. So as we remember that actually Solomon is not that son of David, Christ is that son of David. And we'll see how that works out in a couple of weeks' time. But let's crown him in our lives as we bow the knee to King Jesus, not to Solomon, but as we give our lives to him. So let's pray to God now that we will live with Jesus as our king, that we'll look to him and his promises for our security. Let's pray.